Well, good to see you all here at the public meeting for this week, the third in our series on what it means to love the marginalised and the vulnerable. Having seen the photo of Dave, it is just this really lovely reminder, Dave Baker, who we just prayed for, of how loving obedience to the gospel brings change in people's lives and in this case, some would say a fairly radical change. I remember meeting Dave when he uh, turned up to uni in first year. Uh, He was one of those students who took some time to finish his degree, let the reader understand, uh, for for various reasons and uh, it was just a love, it's been a lovely thing to watch him um, as he's worked um, studying science and then doing a Masters of Teaching um, as he's worked for some time. He came back and was at Howie with us for a couple of years and now he's out in the workforce. It's just a really lovely thing to see the gospel of the Lord Jesus change people to make them more and more like Jesus and in this case, Dave has been persuaded actually by the gospel uh, that he needs to go and reach the LRLR people group and so I think if um, I had have asked him in first year when I met him, do you know the suburb called Chester Hill? He would have looked at me a bit strangely and strange and say, you're making that up, aren't you? Um, yet that's now where he lives, he's changed his church, he's committed to working in a particular area where there are less reached and less resourced people, he's particularly interested in working with Muslim groups and so here's my word of encouragement. Uh, the, the, the scripture encourages us to follow those who encourage us in the faith. So just as you hear about Dave, if you don't know him, be greatly encouraged that the gospel changes people actually. And I would really love it personally if when I meet you, God willing, in two or three or five or ten years time, once you've left uni, that I too can be greatly encouraged actually that you're still following the Lord Jesus. That you read his word, that you pray, that you meet with God's people, in whatever geographic area of the world you do that, but actually you're loving and serving Jesus with the gifts, the skills and the abilities that he's given you. And so here's my encouragement to you, not just for my own encouragement, but actually because that's what the Scriptures command us to do as believers. Can I encourage you to commit to doing that for the next few years? And if we meet again after uni and I've forgotten your name, I'm just publicly saying my apologies right now. Just remind me, just say, I'm so-and-so, remember I was in the EU last year, that would be embarrassing. Uh, I was in the EU 10 years ago, I'd go, okay, great, what are you doing now? Like, can I encourage you to do that? What does it look like to continually submit all of our lives in loving obedience to the gospel of Jesus? Not just a thing to work out while you're at uni, well, you've got to work it out while you're at uni, not just a thing to do while you're at uni actually, but to see the gospel take root in your life for the rest of life. And it'll be a great encouragement actually to those of us who are still here on campus and to all of your friends and hopefully those in your local churches and wherever you take the gospel. So today I've entitled this talk, Into the World. It's the third in the series of talks that we're giving on what it means to love the marginalised and invulnerable and in many respects Dave actually is a good example of of how the Gospels changed him to love this particular people group in the way in which he loves them. I've suggested over the last couple of weeks, firstly, that we should rightly recognise that there are those who are vulnerable and marginalised, who are first and foremost outside the Kingdom of God. They are those who are spiritually dead. The Bible will use the language of saying, as Paul says, you are dead in your sins and transgressions. And as such, in our natural state, we are excluded from the kingdom of God. We are, if you like, marginalised from a right relationship with God. As such, for those of us who, by the grace of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus, have been welcomed into God's family, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, Christians, believers, we actually should love and care for those who are spiritually dead, in bringing to them this great message of hope and forgiveness that Jesus offers, this great message of inclusion into the Kingdom of God. Secondly, I've suggested that we should rightly recognise that there will be those in our society 
who live on the margins for all sorts of various reasons. Some because they've made decisions that they may now regret, others purely because of life's circumstance. There will be those who live on the margins. And if our heart is rightly directed after God's heart, then our lives, our attitude and our actions should reflect this, not only in our attitude towards them, but also in our love and care for them. Remember, brothers and sisters, we are no better than them. Because firstly, we realise that we were marginalised from God and only by His grace have we been included. So we ought not to look down on people. Remember, we saw last week, we ought not to show partiality. We ought not to make judgment by the way in which people appear. And thirdly, I've suggested that we should rightly recognise that there is an appropriate manner for the Christian community as a group of believers to behave towards the wider community in which we live and particularly towards the marginalised and the vulnerable within our society. And it's today that I really want to particularly consider that challenge and implication for us and for the role of the church within our society. So our first passage uh, was there on the screen in Acts chapter 4. We looked at this in some detail uh, last week. But the reason why I want it read again is because it provides some context for the next passage that we're going to look at, which is just two chapters later in Acts chapter 6. Notice what Luke records for us here. Acts chapter 6 verse 1. In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith uh, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, This is but a couple of chapters later from uh, what we see going on in Acts chapter 4. A couple of things to notice about the context. Firstly, the Word of God is continuing to increase. Do you see it there? Both in verse 1, the disciples were increasing in number. Again, in verse 7, and the Word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. One of those few times, actually in the New Testament, where there is a numerical indication about the Word of God growing. A lot of other places, the way in which the Word of God is described as growing is actually depth that the Word of God will grow more deeply in the lives of the believers. But here we see a numerical increase in the number of disciples. So the context is immediately one where this great gospel, this great announcement that the man Jesus has risen from the dead and in the resurrection, as Peter saw in Acts, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, is declared to be both Lord and Christ, this is the message that's going out. And many, many other people are coming to place their trust in Jesus. But notice also what's happening in the immediate context. This has brought about a change in the way in which the disciples were behaving. We saw that last week in Acts 4 when we realised and saw that those who had an abundance, when recognising others were in need, gave of their abundance for the needs of others. Not that, as I suggested last week, everyone would have exactly the same. No, but as was required, those who had surplus 
would give so that no one would be in need. Which is why, interestingly, when we read two chapters later, there clearly appears to be some inequity. Notice what's going on in verse 1. There's a complaint that's been brought, presumably to the apostles, because the um, Hellenistic widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. And our assumption here is that there's some form of social welfare happening for those who are without um, their basic daily needs. It may have been a financial, you may have been given a coin or something to then go and provide food. It may have been the physical handout of food. But whatever the case is, clearly the system that they had working has now stopped working. There are some, the widows, who are in need, who are not being treated justly or equitably. So what decision is made as to how to fix this, how to resolve it? Well, I want to suggest to you that the decision that's made here is one of priority. But notice what takes place here in verse 4. The apostles say, um, verse three, uh, verse 2, sorry, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I want to suggest that in some cases, sometimes this passage is taught so that the priority of the Word of God, preaching the Word of God, is greater than the distribution of food. I want to suggest an alternative way of understanding the passage. The decision is one of priority, but the priority is to obedience. I want to suggest to you that there are those who have been given a particular task. In this case, it's the twelve. What is the task that they have been given? Well, back in Acts chapter 1, when the risen Lord Jesus appears to them, he gives them a particular command. You will be my witnesses, he says to them, to Jerusalem, Judea and to the ends of the earth. This then is the command that the apostles were to be obedient to. Which is why I take it that in this context they then say, therefore, it is not right that we should give up that very thing, preaching the word of God to go and serve tables. Because the priority that they have been given, the obedience that they are to remain steadfast to, is the command to preach. Does that then mean that the distribution of food is a lesser priority? I want to suggest no, not at all. I think there is an equal priority for the distribution of food, which is why the apostles take steps to ensure that the distribution, the daily distribution, is actually carried out appropriately. And the way in which they do this is they choose people who have particular characteristics. Did you notice that as you read through in verse 3? Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we, the apostles, will appoint to the duty. The seven are now under the obedience of the command given to them by the apostles. Such was the authority given to the apostles. Notice in this case, they commissioned them publicly. I take it that's what the prayer and laying on of hands is. They've been given a particular task. And so the seven now presumably set about doing it. One of them, the example that's given, is Stephen in verse 8. Notice how he's described. He's full of grace and power. And he himself was doing great wonders and signs among the people. His character, in many respects, is consistent with those who have been obedient to and devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer. In fact, you read later on in Acts that it's some of the apostles who are performing great wonders and signs among the people as the gospel is proclaimed. So was Stephen's task a lesser task 
or a less worthy task? Was he less competent? No, not at all, actually. They are different, yet just as equally important tasks. Those who have been given the command to the priority of the Word of God and preaching remain obedient to that task. They remain resolute and steadfast. They will not be distracted from it. Which means they then appoint others who presumably now are to remain obedient to the task of the distribution of food. But notice, actually, as you read through the next couple of chapters of Acts, what happens? Stephen gets brought before the religious leaders. He's no longer able to distribute food. So what does he do? He gives one of the most sort of stirring and arguably evangelistic speeches, retelling the history of the nation of Israel and how Jesus fulfills it. He actually then carries out this ministry in that context of proclaiming the gospel. See, what difference does loving obedience to Jesus make? in this situation. I want to suggest here we see two great things. The offer of the inclusion into the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the word and the provision of basic daily needs to those less fortunate than others. Two good things. Two things both described and commanded in scripture. So how do you choose between them? The pattern of the New Testament is they didn't. They did both. So how then does our church today choose between them? Well, perhaps the question to ask is, why would we withhold either of these two good things? Why withhold evangelism from the local community? That urgent concern for the spiritually marginalised and vulnerable. Why would you withhold that offer and provide for basic daily needs without that? But likewise, why would you withhold the benefits of love care, concern, compassion and provision as expressed in the meeting of basic daily needs. That concern for the marginalised and vulnerable in their physical state. Surely this is an unfair question. Why choose between them? This should not be an either or argument but rather a both and argument. Why choose between two? Surely we should be doing both. I think sometimes we make excuses for one or the other, but in the end, we often put off being involved in both. Consider now our second passage from 1 Peter 4. Uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What difference then does loving obedience to Jesus make? Well, as Christians, when we live in obedience to God's good word and we do not indulge in the passions of the flesh, Peter here tells us to expect that we will therefore self-exclude ourselves and rightly so, 
from the patterns and lifestyles that others in our world would often consider to be normal. As such, we should not be surprised when we are maligned for the differences in our patterns and behaviours. We should not be surprised when those of our friends who do not trust the Lord Jesus wonder or perhaps cause us difficulty. We should not be surprised when we as Christians actually end up on the margins of society. See, this, brothers and sisters, is actually to be expected if we faithfully follow Jesus as Lord. Our actions in this regard should set us apart and sometimes cause us to be marginalised. So the question here is, has this been your experience? Have you been maligned in your friendship groups? Not because you've done dumb stuff or you've treated people unfairly or you've been rude to them. No, no, that's almost to be expected. Have you been maligned when you've lived the way Jesus lovingly commands you to? When you've been obedient to the word? Question here is, are your actions distinctly different to that of your non-Christian friends? Uh, Let me give you an example, one that I used in the last couple of days at the other public meetings. Uh, There may be some in the room who struggle with the consumption of alcohol. There may be some in the room who at times have drunken to excess. This may have resulted in the fact, the reality that lots of your non-Christian friends, many of whom drink to excess, actually now enjoy spending time with you. And you too may enjoy spending time with them. If that's you, can I encourage you to move away from that course of action? The Bible actually teaches us not to get drunk. If you regularly drink to excess, so much so you are getting drunk, then you're going against what Scripture is clearly teaching you. For you, this may be an area of godliness that you need to work on, in which case commit to work on it. I'm not saying you'll be able to fix it immediately, but if you do not start, you will not make progress. This may have been your experience, or you can think of other ways in which you've changed, but you may have often drunk to excess and now you've actually reduced the amount that you drink. You've moderated your drinking. Now, do your friends wonder why you don't want to go out with them? Now, do they perhaps scoff and call you like a whatever insert the name is because you now don't drink as much as them? Are you surprised? Do you miss spending time with them? Do you see the tension that's going on within you now? Which is best? Follow the pattern of the world? Be lovingly obedient to the commands of Jesus. Day in, day out, week in, week out, for as many days as the Lord will give you, you will need to keep making these decisions. For many, if you stop making decisions and stop thinking about it, you will end up drifting with the world. What does 1 Peter say? 1 Peter says, Christ suffered in the flesh, brothers and sisters, that you and I would be redeemed from those futile ways that we now might live in the flesh no longer. Peter continues down in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, 
but let him glorify God in that name. Peter here continues the same theme. As we live contrary to the world, it may be that we get maligned. But Peter says it may also be the case, and we ought not to be surprised when it is the case, that we will suffer purely for holding the name Jesus. As Christians, when we live in obedience to God's Word, we should be prepared to suffer for it. And the suffering will come in many and various forms, may include ridicule, may extend to physical suffering, simply for calling Jesus Lord. This I think we see too often as the case in many countries around the world. I don't think we yet see that in Australia. But if it does come, friends, do not be surprised. Peter's told us 2,000 years ago that this would happen. Yet why are we surprised? Why do we demand inclusion? Well, that itself could be another series of talks that I don't have time to give. But I suspect the short answer is that as Christians, we've often been influential in society for all sorts of reasons. We've perhaps also been more beneficial to society as society perceives our actions, through good works and social activism and assistance. And I think there's a truth that particularly in Australian society, it has been more consistent in following Judeo-Christian laws and values. But now, as we see, too easily, too radically, too readily, our society is changing. Just read the newspapers. And Christians, therefore, should not be surprised to find themselves becoming more marginalised. You see it in the public debate in the current situation about religious freedom. You see it in all sorts of areas. Well, here the encouragement, I guess it's an encouragement, is remember what Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. I want to suggest here our response to this as Christians in all of this is not to demand inclusion, but rather it is to rejoice that we are undergoing the similar sufferings that Jesus our Lord underwent. Now, at the same time, realise that in our current society, a liberal democracy, small l, liberal democracy, every citizen, their voice ought to be heard. If you're a citizen, then, and you choose to, based on conscience, speak your mind on certain things, you are free to do so. So, if you want to, speak. Speak up about the values that you hold dear and why you hold them. Try and persuade others of that. Because lots of other people are doing that in our society. Realise that the debate won't always be fully informed. It won't always be fairly moderated or fairly reported. But the way in which you do that, your manner will probably stand your part as a Christian. But I think we ought to stop short of demanding inclusion. Why? Well, society has always marginalised those of the Christian faith. And that's okay because we are to expect it. It happened to our Lord Jesus. It's happened to the early church. It's happened to the church throughout history. We've been told right from Jesus' time that it will happen to us and we ought not be surprised. Well, the ultimate reason is because many in the world are sinful and do not recognise Jesus as Lord. And the evil one works in and through them in all sorts of different ways to try and keep persuading people away from loving obedience to Jesus. But what's our response? Peter says, rejoice. 
rejoice, we are blessed, not because we've not suffered, but rather because we have the Spirit of glory and of God resting on us. That, friends, that Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, that when the Lord returns, we will be with Him for all eternity. The deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that gives us hope now that we might live well in the world in loving obedience to Jesus. Friends, do not be surprised if Christians find themselves on the margins, if the church finds itself pushed to the margins. So how then should the church respond and act? Well, a couple of things just to remind us of where we were a couple of weeks ago. Remember from Deuteronomy, text tells us, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Remember two weeks ago, we saw that the laws that were given sought to enable the nation of Israel to rightly reflect the character of God and to live out loving obedience to Him in how they as a nation existed and how they were to behave to the other nations round about them. You see that they're just in Deuteronomy 16 about the way in which they are to exercise justice through the appointment of others, the judges and the officials. Verse 19, do not pervert justice or show partiality. The very passage that I think James is picking up last week that we looked at in James 2. Verse 20, follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. God has promised that when you live rightly according to His Word, He will honour that under His covenant. For the Israelites, it was the promised land. What's the promise the Lord has made to us? When the Lord returns, we will be with Him forever. For our sins have been declared forgiven. We are righteous in God's eyes. So we've got to remember that what is described in the Old Testament as a model for society in that case was a theocracy a God-ordained rule of, rule of law. Yet we don't have that today. In our current situation, the church has been established as a separate entity to the state and the state has for various reasons assumed certain responsibilities for the welfare of its citizens. I think this means that just nowadays the church is much less seen as a place for the marginalised and the vulnerable to head towards. As per the description of, say, Israel in Leviticus and in some senses Acts 4 and Acts 6, where offer was made for basic daily needs. But at the same time, it is worth remembering that a significant proportion, I don't have the number, all I've heard it could be as high as 65 or 70%, of social services that are carried out by not-for-profits are often run or motivated by churches or religious organisations. Part of our challenge, I think, is that often the church, up until recently, was towards much more the centre of community life. Yet more recently, I think we do need to keep asking the question, would anybody in our community notice if the local church ceased operating? Just think about your local church. Think about the community that it extends to. Some people of whom may be within walking distance because they attend the church, others may spend some time driving. If the church closed, would anyone actually notice? Would it have an effect on anybody other than the 10, 20, 30, 200, however many it is that come and meet in the building? I felt the impact of this fairly tangibly um, when I went door knocking once for a church. Um, it wasn't a church that I was attending. I was uh, just door knocking a street down the road from the church. We knocked on the door of a, a lovely lady. We sort of got chatting. I introduced myself. I said, I'm from the local church up the road. She looked a bit puzzled. I said, the local church up the road. I tried to describe it. I mean, how do you describe a church? Big brick building, stained glass windows, got a cross on the top. She, she said, you yeah, know what a church is. I went, 
She said, I thought that church had closed. She said, uh, no, I was like there this morning. The minister was there and he like... She said, I've, I've never seen them do anything. I'm a bit of a curious person. I asked a few questions. I said, has anyone ever knocked on your door before? She said, no, nope, you're the first. I was visiting the church. I said, okay. What I'd realized as we talked a bit about it, the pattern of her life was she rarely went out on Sundays. So Sunday morning when the church was a hive of activity and Sunday late afternoon and evening when the church was a hive of activity, she was at her house. Pretty much all the other days of the week at some point she'd go out. She might go for a walk or she'd go for a drive or do a shopping or... And whenever she went past the church, there was never any activity. No cars parked out the front, no lights on, no people. No, she just assumed the church had closed. She really actually hadn't been that impacted by the local church. See, what impact does your local church make? It's worth remembering here that the core business, the core business of church, is the gathering of God's people to worship God through the Word and the Spirit as an expression now of what is being looked forward to, eternity with Jesus and the people of God. For us as Christians, the hope of a future, secure, eternal, physical existence with Jesus as Lord, should create in us a right expectation. An expectation actually of knowing how humanity is meant to be living. That's what we're looking forward to. A time when we will live in security, not in a state of being vulnerable. A time when we will live having been included into the kingdom of God, rather than being on the margins. A time when we will not be in any form of physical need, Yet that relationship with Jesus should not act as a restraint for us. As if we say, well, I've got my ticket to that, I just basically sit and wait. No, I take it sometimes that attitude leads us to inaction for ourselves in persevering in the faith, for ourselves in rightly understanding how we are to relate to the world as per 1 Peter 4. But sometimes it leads us to inaction for the well-being of others. No, rather, I think this understanding of what the future will be like must lead us to action. Our manner of living towards others, particularly those who are marginalised and vulnerable, should now reflect that established relationship and should issue forth in changed patterns and expectations of behaviour, particularly to the marginalised and the vulnerable, through those two things, the offer of spiritual restoration and, where possible, as we're able and as it's appropriate, meeting basic daily needs. So I think sometimes when we talk about what role the church should play, we really should be thinking about the role individual groups of believers when gathered, united in a common mind, should actually work out what to do as opposed to an institution or a hierarchy. The question to work out is in your local church, your local congregation, how will you as a believer, as a group of believers, live out loving the marginalised and the vulnerable? You actually can work it out. You don't need to leave it up to an institution. You don't need to wait for, you know, if you are if you go to a denomination which has got a, like a, an office in town, you don't need to wait for a letter from them to say, this is how you must live. Next week, if you meet in home group, and I encourage you to meet in your home groups regularly, you could, if you chose to, sit down and work out what it means for us as a group of six or eight people to work out in our context, with our means, what does that look like to love the marginalised and the vulnerable? You can come up with a plan. You can work out what resources you've got. And you know what? You don't have to wait for permission. You don't have to get permission for anybody to go and do it. You can just go and do it. 
because you've already been given permission. The Lord Jesus called you, saved you, redeemed you, given you his word. Be obedient to that and go and do it. The question to work out is what will it look like in your current context? What resources will you bring to bear in this endeavor? How much time will you give it? How much emotional energy? And whom will you work with as you do it collaboratively? Both spiritually, by not withholding faithful gospel proclamation, but also meeting basic daily needs of provisions and goods and services. What will this look like for you? And then, as the stage of life changes, as you graduate from university and you get your first job, your time might be more constrained, but your financial means might increase, in which case you need to make some adjustments. And as life goes on, this side of the return of the Lord Jesus or you being called to glory, you need to keep making those reassessments. What will it actually look like for me to love the marginalised and the vulnerable, both spiritually and physically? I suggested last week the poor are rarely considered in our decision-making matrix. Maybe they need to be much more in an ever-increasing sense. So to pull all this together, what might it look like to love the marginalised and the vulnerable given that we have been saved by Jesus and we are seeking to live in loving obedience to Him. Firstly, it's worth remembering that I think our position will be, in an ever-increasing sense, as I observe society, our position of ministering and speaking and acting will be from the margins rather than, if you like, from a position of state-sponsored security and acceptance. I think at times the institutional church has always just presumed that they will be safe, they will be accepted. But now I think they're starting to see in some areas they're actually a bit more vulnerable and are gradually being moved to the margins as society moves in a different direction. Uh, This ministry from the margins, if you like, is not at all uncommon historically for the Christian church, but I think it is a new chapter in Australian Christianity. And we together, as the current believers, will need to work out what it looks like for the next 5, 10, 15 and 20 years. Now to do this, we need to remember that fundamentally our character and attitude should reflect the character of God in our love and compassion for those who are marginalised and vulnerable. The offers that we make will be directed towards trying to meet those needs and particularly the meeting of their needs will come at cost to ourselves with regard to giving up our time giving up our material surpluses and often giving up our social capital. Are you prepared to do that? Will you weigh the cost and commit to loving obedience of Jesus? It should also involve at the same time a demonstrated and growing maturity towards greater other person-centeredness in all aspects of our life. That's just what it actually means to grow as a Christian but particularly as we frame this around loving the marginalised and the vulnerable. How will you spend your time? How will you spend your money? How will you spend your emotional energy? We do need to remember here our finiteness. Friends, we are not God. Both of our capacity as well as our material resources. However, rather than this being a prevention to action, it should actually rather spur us to joyous giving and loving service. And also, knowing that the return of Jesus is imminent, We should recognise and accept that our efforts, while bringing change, and that change will actually make a significant difference, God willing, in the lives of many. It will not ultimately bring about the change that only Jesus brings. 
we are unable to establish a theocracy here on earth. Sin still is prevalent in the lives of many. But friends, the day is coming when the Lord returns. And when He does, He will finally establish justice. He will ultimately restore people's dignity and worth. He will create an eternal society where everyone is treated equally and without favour. A place where none are in need, where none live on the margins, where none are vulnerable, because there is security there for all eternity, both spiritually and physically. Now, I, I can't stop without saying, if you don't believe that, if you're not a Christian, but that vision of life is compelling, then maybe you should talk to the person who brought you or come and have a conversation with me and ask, what does it mean to become a follower of Jesus in loving obedience to Him? Brothers and sisters, for those of us who have accepted the Lord Jesus, our response should be one of thankfulness, joyous obedience, rightful loving obedience and service to Jesus, particularly with the marginalised and the vulnerable, but also we should continue to pray and on our lips remember this little phrase, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Will you pray with me? And for those of you who agree, you'll say Amen at the end. Let's pray. Father God, we give you great thanks that you are the Lord of heaven and earth, that you came, that you died and rose again, that our sins would be forgiven. Father, we thank you that you've included us in your kingdom. We ask, please, Father, that between now and the return of your Son, you might help us to live well in the world. Father, help us to move away from loving sin and following its desires and actions in our life. Father, we ask, please, that you would grow us in greater obedience to the Lord Jesus and that our lives, day by day, week by week and month by month, would reflect these things. Father, in our action and attitude towards the marginalised and the vulnerable, we ask, please, that you would grow our hearts after yours. Father, expand our vision. Enlarge our hearts. Make us generous. Help us to love and serve the marginalised and the vulnerable, both spiritually by proclaiming the word and spiritually by, and physically by assisting in basic daily needs provision. Father, we ask, please, the Lord might return soon. We long for that day and we look for it and we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.